If you look at your life 10, 15, 20 years ago, is it better today? I didn't say, is it easier? But it will get better the closer you walk with Jesus. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 2, Lord willing, we'll be here for another few months. The tale is told of a small town that had historically been dry, but there was a local businessman who decided to build a tavern. A group of Christians from a local church were concerned and planned an all-night prayer meeting to ask God to intervene. Just so happened that shortly after the prayer meeting, lightning struck the bar and burned it to the ground. The owner of the bar sued the church, claiming that the prayers of the congregation were responsible for the fire and his loss. But the church hired a lawyer to argue in court that they were not responsible. The presiding judge, after his initial review of the case, stated that, quote, no matter how this case comes out, one thing is clear. The tavern owner believes in prayer and the Christians do not. It's a little close for comfort, isn't it? Sometimes we're surprised when God answers our prayers. It's almost as if we're not sure that he's really going to answer, but just in case, we pray, especially when we're desperate. In football, we call that a Hail Mary pass, right? You throw the ball as far downfield as you possibly can, and then you pray like crazy that somebody on your team catches it instead of somebody on the other team. So today we're going to highlight, Paul's going to highlight in 1 Timothy 2, the first eight verses, the priority of prayer and why that is so crucial. Every week, um, we have prayer requests and praise for what God has done and prayer for what we would like him to do. And they are real people in our class, brothers and sisters and people around the world, people that we know who are dealing with issues that quite frankly have no other solution. And you might wonder if your prayers matter and the answer is they do beyond our understanding because what goes on in heaven when you pray, we mostly don't know. But we do know that God has commanded us and invited us to pray. Let me give you a little historical context. Paul writes the first letter to Timothy in about A.D. 63. Now, Paul had just gotten out of prison in A.D. 62. He was in house arrest for the gospel in Rome. He was released, and he writes, he and uh, Timothy then traveled to Ephesus. Paul goes up to Macedonia, northern Greece, and he writes this letter in about A.D. 63. And the purpose of this letter is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Paul says, I write this letter to you so that you will know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, responsible parents, of which there are a few, a dwindling number, but the responsible parents 
have behavioral standards for their children, correct? Say yes, responsible parents always have behavioral standards. I didn't say the responsible parents always followed their own behavioral standards. I said they had behavioral standards, right? Now, God is the perfect parent. Do you think God has behavioral standards for his children, how they should conduct themselves in his house? He does. He wrote them down right here. So the overriding principle of church conduct is found in 1 Corinthians 14.40, let all things be done decently and in good order. Now, apparently, this principle was not being followed at the church in Ephesus, where Timothy was the pastor, so Paul wrote a letter telling them how they should behave themselves in the house of God. Rob's going to show you a map of Ephesus, kind of give you a global overview about where this is. This uh, city of Ephesus is a really crucial city in the Roman Empire. As we mentioned last week, it's the third largest city in the empire. Rome has got about a million people. Alexandria, Egypt, probably five to 600,000. And Ephesus, probably about 175,000 people. It's a port city. On the Aegean Sea, it's located on the Caister River estuary in the Aegean Sea. Modern-day Turkey, Anatolian Peninsula, right there on the Aegean Sea, the western part of that peninsula. In Paul's era, this city was a Roman province, which means it was a seat of government. Uh, it was an, an imperial province, which means it had a Roman garrison, military garrison uh, there. And great deal of prosperity due to international trade. Huge amount of trade went through this port. Uh, every single year at that point. This was the site of the Temple of Diana, which was the Greek name for her is Artemis. As we mentioned last time, she was the goddess of the hunt and childbirth and fertility. And this Temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was huge and it drew lots and lots of people. Now today, Ephesus is probably the most extensively excavated set of ruins uh, in the Asian a European uh, arena. Rob will show you a picture of that. Matter of fact, he'll show you several pictures of that. I think that's what he's doing behind me. Anyway, the harbor that supported this trade at Ephesus silted up a long time ago, centuries and centuries ago. So right now, if you go to Ephesus, the city, it's about four miles from the Aegean Sea. So it's all been silted in uh, with the Caister River's estuary back then. Interestingly, right now, the Turkish government has a project going for a massive canal going from the Aegean Sea about four to five miles inland. So hopefully at some point in time, they're going to reconnect the ruins of Ephesus to the Aegean Sea. You'll be able to ride a boat right on in. Right now, if you go to Ephesus, of course, you have to take a series of tour buses to get to the, uh, to the city. But the ex excavations here are really, truly remarkable, extraordinarily well-preserved. So you have a very good idea when you look at Ephesus how people lived uh, back in the day. Paul was released from prison about AD 62. He took Timothy, who was his uh, protege. They visited Ephesus. Paul left Timothy at Ephesus when he went north to Macedonia because Ephesus had some problems. And Paul had told Timothy, you need to set right what's going wrong. The church at Ephesus had really begun to drift from the gospel, and they had fallen into false doctrine. Members of their own fellowship, in other words, members of their own church, had begun to teach that salvation could be achieved through keeping the law, the Mosaic law, and not by faith alone in Christ alone. Furthermore, this church had developed a belief, a little bit of a country club approach, that 
This was exclusively a religion for the Jews, not the Gentiles. If you wanted to come to faith in Christ, you had to be a Jew and you had to follow the customs, if you will, of the Jewish faith of Judaism. And so they developed a belief that if you weren't Jewish, you couldn't be saved, so why bother preaching for those people and why bother praying for those people because they weren't going to be saved anyway. So Paul, under the authority of the Holy Spirit, commands them to pray for the salvation of everyone because God has provided a way of salvation for everyone. Now, you and I say, well, Brad, that's pretty obvious. But I think that sometimes there are people in our lives that on one level we believe God could not even save them. I mean, they are so far gone. Brad, they are spiritually stupid, ignorant, rebellious. Of course, when you look in the mirror, you say, hmm, I resemble that. If God can save me, God can save them. So, pray, pray, pray. Never, ever stop praying. 1 Timothy 2, chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all people. Here's the principle. Prayer is the priority of the church because it is crucial to completing the Great Commission. Prayer is the priority of the church because it is crucial to completing the Great Commission. So the purpose of the church is to fulfill the Great Commission. That's why we're here. The only reason God has not taken you to heaven yet is that your work is not yet done. And your work as part of his body is fulfilling the Great Commission. Before Jesus ascended back into heaven, the last thing he commanded his followers in Matthew 28 was what? Go and make disciples. Making disciples is introducing people to Jesus and encouraging those people to know Jesus, love Jesus, and serve him. Paul is saying your verbal witness to the world is impacted by how you behave. And exemplary behavior makes for effective witness. Bad behavior on the part of a believer corrupts your ability to have an effective witness for the world. So people who follow Jesus should not only tell people about Jesus, they should behave like Jesus. It's much easier to talk about Jesus than it is to behave like Jesus. Amen? Amen. That was a pretty wimpy amen. Come on. There you go. All right. Looking in the mirror, right? So Paul says, I want to tell you how you should behave so that your witness to the world will have impact and be effective. And the very first behavioral imperative is prayer. Prayer is not necessarily the very first thing we do to, when we get to church, but prayer is essential, completely essential to the mission of the church. And Paul's emphasis in this passage is not about just prayer in general. There's a lot of passages on Scripture about prayer. This passage, these first eight verses, are all about evangelistic praying. They're all about praying for the salvation of others because prayer cannot be underestimated in its capacity to evangelize others. Without it, it won't happen. Our prayer lives are, are kind of like thermometers. Your prayer life reveals your spiritual temperature. Prayerlessness 
really indicates a spirit of self-sufficiency. People who seldom pray or people who never pray are people who don't have a felt need for God. They believe they don't need God. They believe life is going well. On the other hand, people that pray much are people who know that they are completely dependent on God. So our prayers are a little bit like x-rays or CT scans. Have you ever thought about your prayer life being diagnostic? What comes out of your mouth when you pray reveals what's in your heart, right? So it's a good idea every now and then to listen to what you are saying when you are praying. Because many times our prayer life gets to be pretty routine, right? Say yes. We tend to say the same kinds of things over and over again, and it's terribly easy to talk to God and not really pay attention to the words that are falling out of your mouth because they're just habit. That's just part of what we do. So what we pray about reveals our inner priorities, our passions, our hopes, our fears. Prayer, see, is a priority because prayer is the hotline to heaven. On June 20th, 1963, about a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, by the way, the Cuban Missile Crisis brought the United States and the Soviet Union to the brink of war. Nikita Khrushchev and JFK were having some very interesting conversations about the, uh, the USSR getting their nukes out of Cuba. And we had almost come to the war, to the point of war. Both countries on June 20th, 63, agreed to establish a direct line. A direct line of communication. Washington and Moscow could talk directly on the phone, and that was called the hotline. And it would involve, enable these two presidents to speak directly with each other and so avoid any, hopefully, a nuclear war or a nuclear standoff. Prayer is a hotline to heaven. It is the direct line to the throne room of God, to God himself. Prayer is probably the most underappreciated and underutilized power source in the life of the Christian. God is available how often? 24-7. You don't need an interpreter because he does speak your language. Oildale. <laughs> he understands oaters. I mean, he's got it. No worries. When you talk to God, you never get a busy signal. He never places you on hold. Your call is never dropped or lost, right? Your battery never runs out. See, when you think about being able to directly talk to the God of the universe himself about anything, anytime, anywhere, any place, not praying makes no sense, right? Why would you not want to talk with Jesus about everything? There's an old gospel song that says, Now let us have a little talk with Jesus. Let us tell him all about our troubles. He will hear our faintest cry, and he will answer right now. And he says, I'll answer by and by. In my perfect time, I will answer you. And the last phrase says, You will find a little talk with Jesus makes it right. And we know that. And yet, how many of our troubles do we try and manage on our own? Because either we don't, we're not convinced prayer works, we're not convinced that God wants to be bothered, we're not convinced this is a big enough problem to pray about. That's a major error in judgment, right? So 
It's fascinating that prayer is so important and so underutilized. Some people think that the purpose of prayer is to tell God what they need or what they want, right? Both. By the way, our prayers don't tell God anything he doesn't already know. Matthew 6, 8 says, Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So we don't pray to inform God, and we don't pray to persuade God. Oh God, please give me this or that. Sometimes our prayers seem intent on persuading God to do our will instead of us committing to do His will. Someone once said, and this is a classic line, Prayer is not about getting man's will done in heaven, but about getting God's will done on earth. Prayer is not about getting our will done in heaven, but about getting God's will done on earth. Jesus' disciples asked him to pray, and he said, Pray like this, Our Father who are in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. Have you ever thought about how, how God's will is done in heaven? Have you ever seen an angel arguing with God? Uh, Lord, I don't think that's a really good idea. You know, that does not occur in heaven. But it occurs on earth routinely because we tend to argue with God or we tend to ignore Him. Um, God's will is done perfectly in heaven and very imperfectly done on earth. Now you say, well, okay, Brad, what's God's will? Well, according to this passage, God's will is real simple. God wants the lost to be found, the sinners to be saved, so they can spend eternity within heaven, right? Once people are saved, God's will is real simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Real simple. And the key to both of those happening is prayer. Because only God can change the human heart, right? None of us came to faith without someone praying for us, and none of us can love God or love others without having our heart changed by the Holy Spirit. So ultimately we pray because God commands us to pray, and He invites us to pray. Furthermore, He promises to hear and answer our prayer. Jeremiah 33 Call to me and I will pick up the phone, right? I mean, it's right there. And I will what? Tell you stuff you don't know. And for some of us, that's not much because we don't know very much, right? I mean, come on, right? He says, I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. And you look and go, man, I'd like to know some of those great and mighty things. And he says, well, call. Right? Call upon me and I will answer you. John 16, 23. This should blow your mind. Truly, truly, when Jesus himself says, truly, truly, he says, this is really important. Surely going to happen. I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. What have you been asking him for lately? I will promise you we've been asking him for stuff that's too small, that's probably self-centered, and we've probably been impatient about the answer, right? But he says, you ask, and I will give it to you if you ask it in my name. That means for that which will honor me. Here's the most important thing, and it's the most 
ill understood, and I don't pretend to understand it. Prayer is powerful because it can change the way God acts. To think that you and I, as his creatures, can influence the way he acts is mind-blowing. James 4.2, you do not have because you do not ask. How often should we ask? Luke 11 says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, he who seeks, finds. Tim who knocks, you shall be opened. So it has an idea of persistence. Keep knocking, keep asking, keep seeking. Howard Hendricks was an extraordinarily uh, well-known professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, in, influenced thousands of pastors. His father, military, hardhead, brilliant man, finally came to faith after 42 and a half years of Howard praying for him. 42 and a half years. Some of you are barely that old. Well, kind of. So the point is, have you prayed for anything for 40 years? My mother prayed for my brother until the day she died, and he's still out there. Does that mean it didn't matter? No, it matters. It always matters. E.M. Bounds, one of the great writers, he was a pastor back in the 19th century, wrote, Little prayer, little power. Much prayer, much power. And this is Brad's edition, no prayer, no power. So many, many times I think we're trying to do the will of God. We're trying to do the work of God. We're trying to fulfill the commission of God on our own power. And it's amazing that nothing happens or very little happens. Now, Paul is going to talk about prayer. There are actually seven Greek nouns for prayer, and Paul uses four of them right here. He sees, first one he uses entreaties and supplications. And he says, first of all, meaning this is the highest priority, I want you to make supplication, which means to earnestly offer a request for a felt need or a personal desire. A lot of our prayers in this class are, are supplications. They're entreaties. We obviously have a felt need. So-and-so is sick. So-and-so is going to have surgery. So-and-so is undergoing a, a problem. We know that. That's, a, that's an intensely felt personal desire. Paul furthermore says, I want you to pray and that second phrase he uses, that second word, really refers to prayers in general, but it has to do with the sacredness of prayer. He's saying you're coming into the presence of holy God as an act of worship. So we should pray with reverence. God is our Father, so there is intimacy, but He is God, and He is in heaven. And we are on earth. So when we come before God, we should not come casually. We should come with intimacy and trust and faith, but we should come with a great deal of reverence and worship. The third word he uses is intercessions or, or petitions, and that literally means to draw near to a person or to fall in line with a person and converse with them like a child does with their parent. It really implies a fellowship, an enjoyable fellowship with someone, and this is with obviously with God. And it involves intercession, taking the needs of others before God. So it's not just praying for yourself, it's, it's praying for others. And the last one, 
And the one that's easiest to neglect is thanksgiving. It's thanking God for what he does, not just for what he does, but for who he is. Number one, by the way, if you want a priority, every single day we should give thanks for our salvation. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin. The fact that you and I have passed from death to life and that we have heaven to look forward to no matter how bad this life is, every single day. Thank you, Jesus, for coming for even me. Give him gratitude. So Paul urges us to pray. And of course, the question is, well, who are we supposed to pray for? And Paul says, all people. There are no exceptions. There's no human being. There's no circumstance that outside the scope of the praying question. By the way, this doesn't mean you take the phone book and start with A and just pray through the phone book. Better to pray diligently for a few than very little or very lightly for many. Shotgun praying doesn't work real well. Shotgun praying is God bless everyone everywhere all the time. Amen. Right? You ever done that? Yeah. It seldom hits the targets, what I'm saying. So we certainly should pray for people we know or we know about. If there's a need on the list, we should be praying for them on a regular basis. We should be praying for the saved and the lost, for the rich and the poor, the powerful, the powerless, our friends, and pray for your enemies, maybe especially pray for those enemies, and your neighbors and those relatives who you share a last name, and that's all you have in common with them. Pray for those close by, pray for those far away, but... Pray. Now, Paul's going to help single out a special group of people that we are specifically commanded to pray for, those in positions of authority, verse 2. First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and intercessions be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Here's the principle. Praying for those in authority often produces a peaceful environment that promotes the growth of the gospel. Yeah, I know. It's, there's a lot of alliteration in that, so be patient with me. Ooh. Praying for those in authority often produces a peaceful environment that promotes the growth of the gospel. Paul wrote this at the time when Nero was the emperor of the empire. And he had begun to savagely persecute the church and kill them. This was the emperor who ultimately had Paul beheaded and Peter crucified upside down. And yet Paul commands followers of Jesus to pray for everyone in authority. So we're to pray for the ones we in authority, even the ones you disagree with. Maybe especially the ones you disagree with. So we are not to seek the unlawful downfall of people in authority simply because we disagree with them. We are not called to be revolutionaries, but peacemakers. One thing you can pray for every single person on the planet, I don't care if the most the evil person in the world, you can always pray for God's will to be done in their life, whatever that is. And we don't presume to know what that is, but you can always and should always pray for the will of the Lord to be done in the life of whatever person on that list. I don't care if they're your friend or your enemy, if they're Nero himself. We are to submit to the governing authorities. I didn't say you had to like it when you submit. I don't like it when I submit. But Almighty God calls me to it, so as an act of obedience, I submit to authority even when I disagree with it. And I am to pray for God's will to be done in their life, and God's blessing on them, providing they do not command us to disobey Scripture. 
If any earthly authority commands you to disobey Scripture, then you will say, like Peter and John, we must obey God rather than men and live with the consequences. So why bother praying for the politicians? What he's saying here. So that Christians may live tranquil and quiet lives, lives that reflect godliness and dignity before God in the world. Now, tranquil here really means you have circumstances around you that are peaceful on the outside. Quiet means you have inner peace on the inside. So Paul says, pray for those in authority so you can have peace on the outside and peace on the inside. Now, we can't control external circumstances. Of course, we can control our attitudes toward those circumstances. And Paul says, pray for those in authority so that you will respond to them in a way that will honor God. And really, at the end of the day, no matter whether it's good authority or bad authority, our mission is to, under the authority of Almighty God, respond to that earthly authority in a way that honors God. And of course, how you live, Paul describes as godliness and dignity, because he says your attitudes and actions give a powerful testimony uh, to the credibility of your words. And when Christians submit to earthly authority instead of rebelling against it, the government often allows Christians the freedom to practice their, 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 their faith in the public square. And so far in the United States, we have a degree of that freedom to practice our faith in the public square. Many, many countries don't have that. Pray for those in authority so that you will continue to have the freedom to practice your faith in the public square. Most of us, I'm always, and I'm not critiquing this per se, but one of the things we do when we, when we disagree with something, some people take to the streets and they go on protests. Right? And I protest this and they've got the signs and all this other stuff. I think scripture would say you can accomplish a lot more in your prayer closet than you can in the streets. I'm not saying you shouldn't protest after you've prayed. But never protest as a substitute for prayer. Because that's just trusting in human flesh as opposed to trusting in God. So as we've said in this class for years, the very first thing you should do before anything else, especially before you open your mouth, is pray. Amen? Now that we know who to pray for, the next question is, why bother praying at all? What's our motivation to pray? Verse 3. This is good and acceptable. means prayer is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Here's the principle. Prayer for the lost pleases God because he is passionate about saving people. Prayer for the lost pleases God because he is passionate about saving people. This, this, this acceptable in his presence literally means it gives God pleasure. When you pray for the salvation of the lost, you bring God, God pleasure. Our Heavenly Father is always pleased when His children express their trust in Him through prayer because prayer really reveals our dependency on God and our faith in His power and His provision. And when we pray according to God's will, we know that He hears us and we know that it's God's will for the lost to be saved. So when you're praying for the lost to be saved, you are praying right in alignment with the passion of our Father who sent His Son to accomplish that purpose. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, 
but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I've talked to people who say, well, how come God doesn't deal with evil? And I said, well, he will. It's coming. That's called the day of judgment. That's called the last judgment. That's when he's going to deal with evil. In the meanwhile, he puts up with us. He's patient with our wickedness because he's making time for people to repent. That's his mercy. That's his love. God desires all people to be holy. God desires all people not to sin. God desires all people to give him the glory that he deserves. And yet, people do sin. People do not live holy lives. People do not always give God the glory he deserves. Some people actually choose to reject God's offer of forgiveness. Some people actually choose to spend eternity apart from God in hell. As a matter of fact, everyone in hell chooses to be there. It's a choice. God doesn't send people to hell. You are in hell because you have rejected his provision for sin in Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. So you look and you go, well, Brad, we got a problem here. How is it possible for a sovereign God who's in control of everything, how is it possible for his will to be thwarted? How can people reject his love? If God's desire is that everyone should be saved, then how come everybody's not saved? Well, God has given you and I this marvelous, terrifyingly powerful gift called free will. And we can choose. God loves people enough to give them the freedom to choose to accept or reject Him. And God will honor their choice for all eternity. That's why free will is so staggeringly serious. God allows what He does not approve. God allows many things He does not approve. God allows sin, right? Does He approve of sin? God allows Satan, at least at this point in time, to exist, but he certainly doesn't approve of Satan's activities. God allows people to choose to reject his offer of salvation, even though it breaks his heart. That's love. It's God's desire for all people to know the truth of Jesus Christ and be saved. And by the way, all men here are all people doesn't mean every single person without exception, because we know that many people will reject we know that the path to hell is broad. The path to heaven is narrow. Paul's not teaching universalism here. All people here be saved means all people without distinction. It means there are people that are going to be saved from every race, every nationality, every socioeconomic status, every geography on planet Earth. Jesus saves Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, religious, pagan, slave, free. It doesn't matter what human classification the gospel of Jesus Christ saves. And we know that because in the last uh, book of the Bible, Revelation 7, 9, we're looking at heaven and all things are perfect and we have a new heaven and a new earth and what do we see? Revelation 7, 9. After these things, after this present age passes away, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one can count from every nation, and all tribes and all peoples and all tongues standing before the throne and before the Lord. So God delights in saving people from every tribe, race, nation, tongue, language. I mean, he's breaking the dictionary here trying to tell you of the inclusiveness of the salvation of Jesus Christ. God desires to save people. God loves to save people. But he still gives people the right to say no. 
He gives them the ability to choose to accept or reject God's free offer of salvation, even though his desire is that they would come to the knowledge of the truth. And it's understandable here, it needs to be understandable here, that truth is unchangeable because God himself is the source of all truth and he never changes because the creator lives outside his creation. Is this, is this universe changing? Say yes. Yes, it's changing and it's decaying. A second law of thermodynamics ought to tell us that. But God never changes. God is the unchanging standard by which everything else is measured. Every day, a man used to walk by the jewelry shop in town. And this man would set his watch by the big clock in the jeweler's window. One day, the jeweler happened to be standing in the doorway. He greeted the man in a friendly way, and he says, I see that every single day you set your watch by my clock. What kind of work do you do that requires such correct time each day? The man says, I'm the watchman at the plant down the street. I blow the whistle at 5 o'clock each day. The jeweler was startled, but, 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 but you can't do that. He said, I set my clock by your whistle. <laughs> this is humanity without Scripture, right? If you don't have an accurate map in an unfamiliar wilderness, what is the predictable result? you will get lost. And if you're just following the person in front of you, it just means you get lost together, right? That's our culture. The Bible is the only completely accurate moral compass for life because it was written by God, and God knows the territory because he created the territory. So if you want to find an accurate map for life, you got it in your lap, and he wrote it down in stone. Even better than just having the map in your lap, you have the Holy Spirit. You have God in the wilderness of life with you, and he will open your mind and teach you what you need to know from the Word each day you need it. The most amazing thing for me is every morning, if you block out time, and you read Scripture, and you ask the Holy Spirit to teach you, he knows what you need to know today. And you will get what you need today. And at 3.30 in the afternoon, you're going, oh, yeah, the Holy Spirit said that this morning. It's written right here. And I needed it today. How did he know I needed that today? Well, he is God. Right? So God is very eager to help us. Paul says, God wants you to come to the knowledge of the truth. That does not mean a truth, a partial truth. It means the truth. And one of the things that we are at war in our culture with is the definition of truth because our culture believes that truth is subjective, truth is relative, and truth is a matter of personal opinion. The truth is, truth is objective, it's absolute, and it's very precise. Two plus two is four, always. It's not three, it's not five, it's four. How you feel about two plus two is four is irrelevant. Whether you happen to like that equation or not is irrelevant. Whether you agree with it or not doesn't matter. 2 plus 2 is 4, is reliably 4, consistently 4, precisely 4. You can count on it never changing. Now, ultimately, truth is not an idea. Truth is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ, creator of the universe. He is the unchanging standard 
that never changes, and you can count on him never changing. And that's why Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you need to come to a knowledge of the truth, a precise knowledge of the truth, an intimate knowledge of the truth. God wants us to know his son better and better and better. And he wants to use you and I who are already saved to reach people that he wants to save with the knowledge of the truth. Verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Man, there's a lot of meat in these two verses. Here's the principle. Because God loved the world, he provided the mediator and paid the ransom to reconcile sinners to himself. Because God loved the world, you can put you and I in that category, he provided the mediator and paid the ransom to reconcile sinners to himself. It's interesting that Paul leads this with one God. This is monotheism. This is a really a, a New Testament reinforcement of Israel's statement of faith, the Shema, which means to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is a rejection of polytheism, many gods, pantheism, everything is God, dualism, there's both a good and an evil force that are equal. Here's why this is so important. If there are many gods, then there are many ways to relate to those gods. Paul says, the Bible says there's only one God and there's only one way to have a relationship with God. There's only one way for sinful humanity to have a relationship with the Holy God. And that means you need a mediator. So what's a mediator? Mediator is one who intervenes between two people that are at war. Mediator comes between those two people in order to make peace, to restore a broken relationship. Humans instinctively know that there's a barrier between them and God. If there's going to be a relationship with God, somebody has to bridge that gap. Even as far back as Job, probably 22, 23, 2400 years before Christ, in Job 9.33, he says, he's lamenting. He says, there is no umpire between God and me who can lay his hand on us both. Because Job is under severe, severe attack, and he's crying out to God. God doesn't seem to answer. He says, I need an umpire. I need someone who can go between us. So a mediator is somebody who's got to be able to effectively relate to both sides and accurately represent both sides of the dispute. Now, what would you think about a mediator between God and man? What kind of characteristics does that mediator have to have? If that mediator is going to represent us as human, he has to be man, right? Human. But if he's going to represent God, he's got to be divine. Isn't it interesting that Jesus Christ is the one and only God-man? Fully God and fully man at the same time. And so he alone is qualified to reconcile our warfare, our broken relationship with God. So Jesus really is the bridge between two humans. How many of you have ever um, driven over the uh, Hoover Dam? Remember when you could actually drive across the dam, top of the dam? You can't do that anymore because it's considered a national security risk. So they have built this bridge. Have you seen the bridge that spans that gorge above the dam? Anybody seen? Google it at some point. You can Google it right now. I won't mind. 
Anyway, if you look at that bridge, it is massive. And the struts that go down in that canyon, I mean hundreds and hundreds of feet. And I've never driven it, but I've looked at Google shots of it, and I thought, I hope the people that built this bridge really have it anchored pretty firmly on each side, because if not, really bad things are going to happen when you're in the middle of that bridge. So for a bridge to be effective, it's got to be firmly anchored on both sides. And if Jesus is going to be the bridge between God and us, he better be firmly anchored in heaven, and he better be firmly anchored on earth in order to be an effective bridge. And of course, he is both God and man, so he, uh, he is anchored in both heaven and earth and can reconcile those relationships. Another word that you might think about when you look at the word mediator is the word priest. A priest goes between. A priest goes between two people, in this case God and man, and bridges the gap between these opposing parties. And of course, our ultimate high priest is Jesus Christ who brings God to us and brings us to God. Hebrews 4.14 says, since then we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And this verse gives us such comfort. If you wonder why you should pray to Jesus, here's why. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are yet without sin. When you bring your brokenness and your burdens and your tears and your sorrows and your regrets, Jesus understands. He walked where we walked. He was tempted in every single way that we were tempted. He did not sin, so he can represent us. All priests, of course, when you read the Old Testament, offered sacrifices for sin, and Jesus Christ offered himself as our sacrifice. And the word he uses there is ransom. And the word ransom is, of course, what you give in exchange to buy somebody else's freedom. In other words, it's the price tag you pay in order to set a slave free. And of course, when we were sinned, when we sinned, we were separated from God, we became slaves to sin. And the only way we could be free from slavery and be reconciled to God is to have someone else pay the penalty, pay the ransom price. And that's what Jesus did. He literally died in our place took our sins upon himself and gave us his righteousness. So the ransom for our freedom was the death of the Son of God. One of the best summary lines I've heard on that is, Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. Verse 7. For this, I, Paul, was appointed the preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Here's the principle. Hypocrisy hinders our praying, but a peaceful and pure life helps us pray more effectively. Hypocrisy hinders our praying, but a peaceful and pure life helps us pray more effectively. As we mentioned before, apparently these, this church in Ephesus believed that salvation was only for a select group, the Jews, not the Gentiles. And their church had been kind of an exclusive 
club where only the right kind of people uh, could attend and be saved. So Paul says, no, God has commissioned me to carry the gospel to the Gentiles, which is everyone else but Jews, because the entire world can be saved through Jesus Christ, John 3.16. So Paul says, God commissioned me to carry the gospel to everyone. And God so desires the salvation of the world that God took Saul, the murderer, and made him Paul, the missionary. Now that would be impossible according to human standards. And if you look at your life 10, 15, 20 years ago, is it better today? I didn't say, is it easier? Life is not going to get easier as you age. But it will get better the closer you walk with Jesus. It will not be easier. You can have a very good life that's very difficult. That's right. Never confuse comfort and ease with good. Our life is good to the extent that we are intimate with Jesus. And many, many times we're intimate with Jesus most of the time when life is hard. When we get to heaven, we will give gratitude for the hard because we will understand that it was essential to our walk with Jesus. I don't even like that that came out of my mouth, but it's truth. So I'm saying it. I tell you many things I don't like. My flesh does not like because my flesh like comfort. And the Holy Spirit says, deal with it, big boy. You are mine and you are going to speak truth. And these are my children and I am sufficient for all your needs. Period. So every man in this every church is called to take the lead in praying for the lost. Men, this is a direct command, and I would have to say, for the most part, the women in the church pray with far greater commitment than I see men doing. There's no place where God forbids prayer. There is no circumstance where prayer is inappropriate. There are no people who do not need prayer, and there is no time where prayer does not improve the situation. But Paul says the life of the prayer must be right in God's sight. He says, I want you to lift up holy hands. The Greek there is hosios. It means I want you to be undefiled. I want you to be free from wickedness. I want you to be free from sin. And you're going, well, I'm always going to have sin. Yes, but is it confessed? Is it repented of? Or are you hanging on to it? If you're going to pray in God's house, you need to be living a clean life or else your hypocrisy is going to stink up the room where you're praying. So Paul says, we know we're sinners, we're going to sin, but are we confessing that sin on a day-to-day -day basis, hour-to-hour -hour basis? Is our passion to walk with the Lord? Because if we pray and we offer these loud, long prayers like the, like the uh, scribes and Pharisees do, and everybody knows you don't believe it because you're not living that way, the world stops listening. They're going, ah, you just hypocrisy. doesn't mean anything. On the other hand, if you live a life that's honorable before God, the world will be impacted by our prayers. And Paul says, by the way, for you to pray effectively, you got to get along with each other. No wrath, no dissension. He's, not he's talking about inside the body. He says, pray without wrath and dissension. 
And this is a verse that is pretty staggering. Paul warns men in 1 Peter 3, 7, that if you're not at peace with your spouses, your prayers are going to be hindered. Whoa, baby. So you say, well, God doesn't seem to be answering. You got unfinished business with people in your life? In Matthew, Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar. Don't come to my house. Go make it right with them. Now, I understand you can't control their response. You cannot control their response. But you can be right before God and ask them for forgiveness if you need to or confess what you need. So you be responsible for your half of the equation and let God deal with the other half of the equation. Your prayers will be hindered if there's strife among the saints. That's pretty severe, and it's yet is very necessary. God says, I want my children to love each other. I delight to hear that. There's no peace among God's people. Their prayers are not as effective as they will be. <clears throat> At a meeting of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Bobby Richardson, former second baseman of the New York Yankees, offered a prayer that is classic in brevity and poignancy. He said, Dear God, your will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Amen. Let's review. And then Tom will come up and lead us in our time of prayer and praise. Number one, prayer is the priority of the church because it is crucial to completing the Great Commission. Prayer for those in authority often produces a peaceful environment that promotes the growth of the gospel. Prayer for the lost pleases God because he is passionate about saving people. Because God loved the world, he provided the mediator and paid the ransom to reconcile sinners to himself. And lastly, hypocrisy hinders our praying, but a peaceful and pure life helps us to pray more effectively. Number two. I guarantee you that you will have some things to pray about this week. You will. You will also have some things to praise about this week. Make sure we complete that equation and thank God for all the wonderful things he does and for the great Savior he is. Amen? Love you guys. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.